is a kind of practice of what I call, I use the word appropriation. Sometimes I even talk about cultural appropriation as a spiritual practice. And what I'm talking about there is um, an aspect of Buddhist thought and praxis and sort of subject formation that kind of equips uh, Buddhist practitioners for for travel, for portability, um, and for the establishment of place um, or a certain kind of place consciousness wherever they may find themselves. Yeah. And in Tibetan tradition, you know, there's a there's an emphasis in certain kinds of Dharma practice on a kind of nomadism. For example, you see this a lot in the Chud practice, um, where actually, you know, becoming homeless is part of one's commitment to the spiritual practice. In there's a Bodhisattva mind training, uh, a famous text called the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva, um, where early in the text, it says to leave one's home is to accomplish half the Dharma. So, you know, there is a kind of rootedness that happens, you know, if you're burying treasure vases or something that seems like a kind of permanent thing to do in a way. There's a kind of dialectic, I guess you could say, between a sort of emplacement, right? Um, uh, but then also a kind of um, transcendence of place, uh, for lack of a better term, a kind of spatiality starts to enter in here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the nature of mind, the deep nature of mind is distinguished from our typical experience or identity or sense of what the mind is, like as a collection of attitudes or cognitive capacities, etc. cetera. Um, when, when the mind is drawn inward in the sense that the mind looks at mind or looks for mind, then so the teachings go and the meditation instructions go, that normal sense of self or subjectivity is seen to be without substance. And yet still experience continues with its luminosity and its ever, uh, it's sort of spontaneous variety. And so there's this interesting kind of thing here where the self can't be found, but that's this sort of liberating not finding. And sort of phenomenologically, what that has to do with is is an experience of vast spaciousness. And so here we kind of have this sense that liberation is sort of transplacial. It has to do, I mean, metaphor is often spoke of as the preeminent kind of image uh, for the nature of mind. Longchenpa writes about this. Um, I translated some uh, pieces of his work where he discusses this. Um, and so there's this kind of interesting dialectic between place, which is in some ways synonymous with samsara, and then nirvana as this kind of non-localizable sort of nature of wisdom. The word apratishtita nirvana is used for this sort of non-localizable nirvana. But the thing is that it's not this sort of a cosmic removal from place because what's talked about here is that when one is no longer structuring one's experience in terms of this kind of egoic limited sort of privileged point in this space of mind, then what happens on the other side of that? Well, there are texts that describe this. And so, for example, in the yoga chara tradition, um, like in the ornaments of the Mahayana sutras, Mahayana sutra Lankara is a text that talks about this, where what emerges on the other side of that non-localizable realization is a total transformation of the, um, of the geographic surround, right? And so the emergence of what's called the, the Buddha bodies or kayas arises here. But 
Buddha body as a, as a translation of Kaya um, is somewhat misleading. Some people have proposed dimension as a translation of Kaya. One of the reasons for that is because um, the, this, this Kaya includes the place and the time and a communicative event that involves a teacher, a retinue of students, and a message being transmitted. And so what you have here is the, um, the kind of refining of experience so that it's no longer sort of me versus the world, the kind of skin encapsulated ego, but instead it's recognized to be an embodied and emplaced um, event of a communicative event. And so that's this sort of interesting thing where the Buddha is not just in, but as places. So, but again, essentially non-localizable. So there's this kind of interesting sort of dialectical thing going on there. So you asked me about, you know, these practices in Tibet. Um, and I told you that my emphasis is more sort of philosophical, but, you know, I think you can see this kind of um, effort to sort of continue this sort of practice of appropriation of, of, of emplacement wherever Buddhists find themselves. And so that's happening now again under the conditions of, of today, which involves this diasporic spread of Buddhism beyond uh, the old boundaries of Tibet. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's very, I guess, provocative use of the idea of cultural appropriation because uh, it's such a, you know, um, I guess just controversial and contested yeah. kind of political issue these days. And to think like, well, you know, not all appropriation looks like what we think cultural appropriation looks like in mass media these days. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing this kind of a, a healthier version of appropriation. It reminds me in stoicism, there's a concept of appropriation that's really just like making your home. Right. And the word for it is oikos, uh, oikiosis. And so it's the same oik that's in oikos of home. Sure. So I think this is like a fundamentally ecological point, this idea of cultural appropriation. So yeah. I don't know. I, I like that a lot. That's one of those things. There's a handful of things uh, in, the, in your uh, dissertation defense that I was hearing. That I was like, ooh, that's, that's a meaty kind of thing to say. And uh, lots of implications yeah. there.